Say your last name again for me. I just want to hear it. Z- Zerybniak. I just want to make sure that I get it right. <laughs> no, it's I just, fine. It's a okay. hard one. My maiden name was Danilchak, which was just as hard. That is uh, just as hard. Liter- well, they're both Ukrainian. So both of them are terrible. Oh, uh, gotcha. And I like to say that I only married him because he was cute. Because it's totally not fair that I went from one to the other. And they're both hard. <laughs> they are. They're both hard. <laughs> All right. So you're ready to get started? Ready. Okay. So ready. You're listening to Inside the Aluminum Tube. This podcast has adult language and sometimes contains graphic descriptions of accidents and incidents often resulting in death. If you're scared to fly, proceed with caution. Sir, are your pants meowing? Yeah, you interested? Pull up. No, the plane is about to crash. Wind shear. You're looking a little anxious, Kent. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Increase climb. Only if you really need me to. Threw his clothes off. Had an accident. Got his tree and went night-night. 50, 40. Oh, so like some dumb bro shit. Okay, cool. Cool, 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 cool. 30, 20, 10. Clear of conflict. So before we get started today, I just wanted to address some listener mail. This one comes from Nicole and she asks, you asked a while back for some questions the average Joe would want to know. And if I may, I would like to contribute. Why does one have to turn off their mobile phone when flying? Will it really fuck up the controls or whatever? Please and thank you kindly. Well, Nicole, this is actually a question that a lot of people have. This started way back in the 90s and before. The problem with early phones is they had a very high broadcast wattage, and they could potentially cause interference in aircraft navigation systems. But more than that, they would actually cause issues with ground cell networks. The cell phone tower isn't designed for broadcasts to come from the air, so the concept is that it would cause interference. However, since we moved on to digital technology, this is not an issue anymore. In fact, the FAA knows this, and they considered lifting the ban in 2007. However, they decided not to, and there are a few good reasons for this. The very first reason is, again, the equipment that is on the ground expects phones to also be on the ground. So the ground-based equipment could be susceptible to interference. I'm not saying the airplane is susceptible. So we're really a consideration for the cell phone company here, not really for the aircraft. The other thing is the FAA wants to keep the cabin of the aircraft friendly. And I say that because nobody wants someone sitting next to them talking on the phone. In a very small airplane where you have a hundred or a few hundred people, listening to someone talk on the phone or listening to multiple phone conversations at the same time can be extremely frustrating and it can cause people to get very angry. And as we know, as we've learned from other episodes, air rage is a real thing. So the FAA said, you know what, we're just going to keep it in place. People will be a lot happier if we do that. So that is the reason why we don't allow cell phones in the air. We haven't allowed cell phones in the cockpit for a long time, and that's because they can just be distracting if they turn on and off. Now, I do have to say that if you take your cell phone and you get it really close to electrical equipment, like in the cockpit, sometimes you can hear it. You can hear the signal, the digital signal buzzing through the microphone or something like that. So I suppose that electromagnetic field or broadcast can cause some interference. But again, that's not the real reason. And even today in a wireless environment where you could make a WhatsApp call, the airline says no, no VOIP calls 
during the flight. And again, that's just to keep people from basically punching each other. So anyway, Nicole, thank you so much for the question. And now let's get on to the episode. Welcome back to the Aviation History Podcast. Today, I have a co-host, didn't you know? And with her, we are going to look at events in aviation history like air disasters, accidents, incidents, mere mishaps, along with the occasional crazy story or Guinness record. Aviation touches every bit of our culture and aviation history is worth remembering, but it's worth remembering accurately. So I'm here to tell you the stories. I'm Shannon Baker. I'm your host and I'm the creator. You can learn about me in episode zero. If you want to see pictures of the events that we talk about, you can enhance your experience by using the Instagram and the Twitter, both at Aluminum Tube. You can even email me your ideas or your feedback at AluminumTubePodcast at gmail.com or go to AluminumTubePodcast.com or ALTubePodcast.com where you can join my Patreon and please do tip me, get decals, meet the co-hosts and listen to episodes all right there in your browser. Today, I have a special co-host. Her name is Robin Zerebniak. And she runs their wacky and wild Instagram called What the Crazy House. If you don't follow that account, you should. She's joining us for another round of Inside the Aluminum Tube. And we are joining her here today in Ohio. So we're going to let Robin tell us just the history of What the Crazy House and how that came to be. So Robin, introduce yourself and tell us all about your things. Hi, Shannon. Thanks for having me. I'm pumped. I started What the Crazy House on a whim from some really ugly space bedroom that I saw. Uh, when we were slow at work, I used to look at Zillow and look at houses. And I saw I th- a lot of people do that. I still do that. I still do that. I all own the time. a house and I'm like, it's I'm not my buying favorite a house, right? like weekend pastime is just to look at Zillow. So right. I started seeing all these ugly things. And I thought to myself one day, wouldn't it be funny if there was like one spot where I put all of these like a page or like a something Mm -hmm. so on a whim I just made the Instagram page and it didn't really get a decent following and for a couple of years and you just kept at it I just kept at it I just kept posting stuff more for me to scroll through just and a couple people but now I'm up to 14,000 followers which I think I've been following your page since it was like less than a thousand oh well you're like like one of the OGs yeah yes um (laughs) But now we got 14,000. Oh my God, I can't believe it. So many. And then last I counted, it was like 30 something countries, which blows my mind. Yes. I mean, I have a country, I have international exposure too. And every time I look at it, I go, there Isn't are countries so I don't weird? even know existed. And, and I fly around the world and I'll just go, where is that? What? I have a really big following in Australia, which okay. makes me laugh. I don't know what it is, That's but I get funny. so many messages from there. But yeah. I think my biggest following is actually comes from Ireland. Really? Yeah. Interesting. I, I, the Irish love me, apparently. Anyway, so that's your story. Yeah. So I just started it on a whim. I thought of the name just on a whim, and I just kept at it. And now people send me ridiculous things, and I post ridiculous things. And So you don't have to do as much work anymore. Uh, no, I still do because I still just am nosy and I like to look at look, to look around at people's <laughs> <Yes>. disasters. <laughs> oh, I agree with that. I have I was uh, shopping for a house last year and uh, towards so many disasters that I was. I believe you sent me some of them. There probably. was a house that I looked at that had a stage in it, like a legit stage, and I was just, what are you, what are you doing in here? Uh, just I don't know what people are doing in. <laughs> <sighs> 
I think of that every time I look back at some of the posts that I've made. And I just think like people did this on purpose. They paid. This was a thing. And they even paid. And they paid for it. Right. Money to deal with it. I don't understand. Oh, I don't get it either. So. (laughs) But if you want to roll your eyes a lot and cuss a lot then follow me. <laughs> oh, yeah. I say, I think you said you listened to every episode. I've listened to everyone at least once, number five, multiple times. It is my daughter's favorite. Thank you so much. Like, she requests it when we're in the car. Can uh, we listen to Hang on Hank again? That's so time. funny. But thank you for listening. I of really course. do appreciate it. I and it. I have more stickers for you today. Yes. And if anybody else out there wants There's stickers, one on my car right now. That's how you find it in a parking lot. It is. Yeah. I just see the little green sticker and I know exactly it's mine. If anybody else out there wants stickers, I can um, just drop me a DM on the... They're amazing. You should do it. They're they're really quality stickers. They're awesome. I use um, Sticker Ninja, which is a company out of Portland, just like a locally owned company out of Portland. And I order through them and they're great. And the stickers are amazing. And obviously, like I said, I'll drop me a DM with your address and I'll send them to you. So we're here to talk airplanes, right? I'm ready. I like to keep the podcast on the straight and narrow okay because i don't like it when it gets too far off the rails that's fine i listen to some other podcasts and they get too far off the rails and i want to turn them off and some of them are too much to the point we're in so the I middle think there's a happy medium i'm ready we can talk about like little things right in the middle not too far off it's okay if you get out too far i'll just i'll just take it out and post but anyway are you ready to talk airplanes so ready all right this is a really good story today i have for you so i'm going to tell you about the airplane Then I'm going to tell you about the company, and then I'm going to give you the date, and we'll talk about the events. Okay. Okay? I'm ready. All right, cool. So, the airplane. The airplane is the Lockheed L-188 Electra. You will not find yourself on this airplane. Okay. Because it is an old airplane. It's a four-engine turboprop airliner that was built by Lockheed in California. A turboprop means that it has jet engines that drive the propellers. Yep. Because I've listened. It kind of looks like a little bit of a modern airliner, but it has propellers. And there are four of those propellers. It first flew in 1957, and it was the first large turboprop airliner that was built in the United States. Prior to this, the U.S. used aircraft with large piston engines that they built in the United States. Again, older technology. And the only popular large turboprops were being built by the Brits, namely the Vickers Viscount. That was like the biggest one is by a company called Vickers. But the Canadians got in on that too. Um, They had a couple. Russia also had a few as well as when I was doing the research, I figured out that actually Japan built some of the first early turboprops, which I I thought was interesting. So the first commercial delivery of the Electra was to Eastern Airlines. And it entered service in January of 1959. Cool. Okay. The electric could seat up to 98 passengers in a high-density configuration. That means there's no first class. Okay. So it's not that small. That's decent size. No, it's decent size. But I mean, yeah. But anyway, typically it was outfitted to seat 70 people in a two-class configuration, right? You get a first class. And then the rest of the people are kind of crammed in there in the back. The later models could fly about 2,700 miles which is quite a distance for a turboprop, um, 370 miles per hour and could go seven hours. Wow. And they are really loud. So you wouldn't really want to be in there. <laughs> for would, seven hours. Oh, your head would just be, you'd just be like, wow, 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 wow. That's oh, what you would listen gosh. to okay, for seven yeah. hours and the vibration of turboprops. And that's kind of why they left. Phased them out. Yeah, they kind of phased out because too loud, too much vibration. But the Electra had a uniquely high power-to-weight ratio. 
meaning it had a lot of power for how much it weighed, and that made it good for short fields and high-altitude airports. Huge propellers, very short wings, that gave us something else. It generated more lift because the wings were constantly bathed in prop wash. So basically, the propellers think that the propellers are blowing wind artificial winds back over the wings all the time, even when we're not moving forward. So that gives the airplane even more lifting potential, Mm. more lifting capability. The airplane had performance capabilities unmatched by many jet transport aircraft of even today. That's because turboprops have the benefits that we talked about, but they're slower in cruise. They do burn less fuel, so everything is kind of a trade-off, but one of the biggest issues is noise and vibration. Good and bad. It turns out that people prefer jet... Quiet. <laughs> yeah, they prefer quiet and not being shaken about. Oh, okay. And that that droning in their head, you know, for hours, hours and, and hours. hours. Yeah, yeah hour, all those hours and hours. So there was a turboprop airliner age, but it was very short-lived. Less than 10 years. Oh, wow. Really yeah, short. Yeah, we kind of phased in turboprop airliners in about 1960, and we kind of phased them out by 1970. Wow. So... Very short. Just In the through, whole history of aviation, that's like boop. That is like a little boop, boop. Right? That's it. Yep. <laughs> I totally agree. But the Electras did carry on because they had some benefits. They were eventually sold to South American operators because of the Andes Mountains. Okay. Because okay. you said they go better higher. Yeah. They're better at like high performance climbs and mountainous terrain and stuff. Well, there you go. And they were sold to African carriers where they were in service until the early 2000s. Oh, okay. Yep. Many Electras were modified as freighters, as you can imagine. If you can get them for cheap and carry stuff in them, then it doesn't matter if the pilots are being, you know, if it's loud in the cockpit, that they're being paid. So if you can put boxes and all kinds of stuff in it, then why not fly it? Obviously. So some Electras are still being used in various roles even today, mainly as what we call the Lockheed P-3 Orion, which is a maritime patrol aircraft used by the Navy. Interesting. In fact, I it's funny, I fly with some P-3, like Pilots. people that had flown P-3. They're used as fire bombers. Oh. Because they can carry a lot of weight. Sure. And they have good not? performance. And a lot of fires happen in the mountains, right? Which is, like I said, it's perfect for mountainous operations. So Win-win. they've kept them alive. That's the airplane. All right. There's not that much. Do you have any questions? Not yet. Oh, I, I wanted to say it did take three pilots. Oh, okay. So three pilots in the in the flight deck, not not two. So the company. Okay. The company is called Lineus Aereus Nacionales, or Lanza. Okay. It's a Peruvian airline that was founded in 1963 in Lima. They began domestic-only flight operations in January of 1964. In 1965, 33% of the company was bought by Eastern Airlines with the arrival of the N-A-M-C-Y-S-11, which was a Japanese turboprop, somewhat similar to the Electra in 1967. Now we're going to call the company Lanza, like I said. Lanza increased the number of flights to national airports, nine national airports, including Cuzo, Iquitos, and Pucallpa, places in Peru I've never been. I was going to say, have you ever been to any of those? No, that's just a few. There were nine. I've only been to Lima. Okay. In Peru. So I've never been to those places. However, by January 1972, the Peruvian government had revoked Lanza's operating certificate. Uh oh. The airline had already ceased all operations after a few crashes. All other aircraft types, other than the Electra, had already been phased out and sold 
they were lost in accidents or they were grounded in Lima and deemed not airworthy by the Peruvian government. Is that the actual aircrafts or the crew, like the pilots? That's the actual airplanes. Okay, the actual so airplane. it's a great airline. You get in that warm and fuzzy feeling about, sure. yeah, let's let's go fly on a Lanza flight. Like, No, thanks. I'll drive. Right, exactly. So they started <laughs> in 1963 and they ended by January 1972. So they were a blip also. Okay. And that's the airline. All right. So are you ready for the date? Yes. Okay. It's December 24th. Christmas oh. Eve All right. of 1971. Lanza Flight 501 was scheduled to depart Lima for Iquitos with a stopover in Pucallpa that morning around 6 a.m. However, due to severe thunderstorms along the route where the Andes met the Peruvian rainforest, the flight was delayed. After a six-hour delay, oh. the pilots elected to take the flight because they were being pressured by the company to meet the holiday demand. Sure. The aircraft was needed in Iquitos, which was the final destination as soon as possible. So they were basically on a holiday schedule. They had a lot of passengers, but the weather wasn't cooperating. So the company said, just maybe just do it anyway, or the pilots were getting antsy or whatever. So Lanza Flight 501 departed Lima Airport at about 12 p.m. that day I'm on, Christ- on Christmas Eve. You, you do look nervous, actually. <laughs> The big turboprop had 86 passengers and five crew. Like I said, three pilots, two flight attendants. Okay. It was carrying 91 occupants total on the 1.5-hour flight of less than just 500 miles. I looked up this route to see if you could drive it by car because I was like, oh, I think she's probably going to say something <laughs> about driving it. <laughs> okay. It would take 18 hours. Oh, my goodness. It's through the Andes. There are no highways. To go from point A to point B, it is 500 miles of like... Like mountainous terrain. Near off-road terrain. Oh my gosh. Like it is... If you can imagine like little curvy mountain roads, that's the route. So this is why you're going to get on the... Man, that's a toss-up. I know. This is why you're going to get on the airplane because you're going to be like, that is way too much. Yeah, forget it. All right. Yeah, exactly. Anyway... The Electra, with excellent performance, it quickly climbed to its cruising altitude of 21,000 feet, and it proceeded along the planned route. However, there still was an area of thunderstorms fueled by the Amazon rainforest's hot, wet air being pushed up by the Andes, and the wind had increased. So what this means was, it was an area of near constant bad weather. That little spot has wind that constantly blows over it, pushes that hot air up, the Andes Mountains have drier on the other sure. side. They cool it. Sure. And it's essentially like constant. Storms all the time. Yeah. It's like always thunderstorms right oh in gosh. that area. Th- this is one of the reasons the Amazon exists is because the, the rainforest exists is because the Andes are right there and it constantly pushes up and drops thunderstorms. Great for the rainforest. Bad for planes. Yeah. Not great for <laughs> planes. Right. But the pilots had known. Uh, the pilots knew. I mean, they'd flown this route many times. They were certainly used to being bumped around a bit, so they proceeded to fly just into the imposing line of thunderstorms. But I'm here to tell you that airplanes should never fly into thunderstorms. I'm going to show you. That. Yeah, I'm going to show you some pictures and I'm going <gasps> to explain why they should not. I can't wait. Throughout the three stages of thunderstorm development, there exists vertical wind, both up and down, that it can that can exceed a hundred miles an hour vertically. That's a little brisk. Up, da- updraft and downdraft. Well, essentially it becomes, it's faster than an airplane can climb. So if you are in a downdraft that's going 100 miles an hour, 
you can imagine that the airplane would have to climb against it just to main, maintain, maintain altitude. Right. Not climb, not do anything, just to maintain. So that's not very good. Worse yet, it can alternate up and down. So you can fly in an area that's pushing up and then an area that's pushing down. Sure. Okay. That can cause massive structural failures of aircraft Ooh. as they're bounced essentially back and forth. Additionally, strong horizontal and vertical rotors are formed and these are what form, form tornadoes prior to their touchdown. Inside of that thunderstorm, yeah, this just vertically like and also horizontally. So goodness. thunderstorms are bad. I mean, this is just me explaining thunderstorms. We'll get to what actually happened. And if that's not bad enough, all that hot rainforest air gets pushed up. And in the case, and in this case, by the Andes Mountains. And that's particularly insidious because the Andes are known to be so dry where the rainforest air is very hot. Again, that causes stronger thunderstorms. And with that type of extreme lifting force, we get what we can call supercells, where there are thunderstorms, but they're especially bad thunderstorms. And they come alive with very heavy rain. Rain that is so heavy, it can actually put out the fire inside a jet engine. Oh my gosh. So it's essentially like taking a fire hose and just sticking it in there. You don't look very comfortable right now. No, this is making me nervous. You know, uh, the fire inside the jet engine is happens to be what keeps it running. So we kind of so want So maybe it. you don't want that to go out. Yeah, we want it to stay on. Okay, that's fair. And then hail. Oh, this happen. is another perfect thing for airplanes. Hail can be bigger than an inch. Oh. Or 30 centimeters up to literally the size of a softball. Okay. Or larger. So in my normal life, I am an insurance agent. And I had a client come in a couple of weeks ago with hail damage to their car. Yeah. And I mean, it looked like it got hit by baseballs and golf balls. It was like all yes. over the place. And I can't imagine what that would look like on an airplane. And so I'm going to, that would be good. I'm going to show you and I'm going to post the pictures to oh. the Instagram. So these flying chunks of ice can rip airplanes to literal shreds. I'm going to show you a fighter jet that <gasps> had a hail encounter. No. That's looks pretty terrible. Yeah, that's pretty bad. Just hail did that? That's just hail. Here's a airliner, a turboprop with hail damage. That's just hail. Oh my goodness. Yeah, you can see that those very solid chunks of ice and aluminum are And they're bigger up there cuz it's colder? Um well, they haven't had time to thaw. Right. And they're still like up there kind of being tossed around and as they're tossed so... around, more water grabs a hold of them. And so they work as what's called condensation nuclei, where the little tiny bit of ice crystal becomes a basically a big chunk that everything so you're grabs just, a hold like, of. So you're cruising through baseballs. That is exactly what's happened. You're basically flying through baseballs. Oh, my God. But also, let's not forget about lightning. When we see lightning on the ground, that is an indicator that lightning exists also inside the thunderstorm. Sure. Okay. It can go in any direction, but it also loves metal stuff. Sure like the skin of aluminum airplanes. Airplanes are a great target for lightning. Lightning can cause instrument failures, and they can burn through the skin of an aircraft. In extreme cases, lightning can cause engine fires and fuel fires. And because they can burn through the skin, they can cause depressurizations and pretty severe damage to the control surfaces. So here's a regional airliner with a pretty severe lightning strike. D yeah, I'd say severe. I mean, it looks like somebody took a torch and burned a it hole does. in it. Yeah. It's, right by the window, too. Perfect. Yeah, right. Some lightning damage is not very severe. Um, I was going to say, is it I, super unusual to get hit? No, it's not. It's not that unusual to be struck by lightning. I've been struck by lightning in an airplane several times and had 
small amounts of damage. I've never experienced a like lot. engine failure. And like yeah, or like a burn hole or anything. I've never seen that, but it can happen. So on this day, the pilots of Lanza 508 decided that they were going to fly through the line of thunderstorms because the line was very long and flying around it wasn't an option because as you can imagine, the Andes run north and south. Sure. That line is really There's long. There's not really a way to go around. Yeah, you. I mean, you could probably, but you're going to have to go maybe hundreds, hundreds of miles, of miles of right, way. to get around. But if we're being honest, this is probably not the first time these pilots had done this. Well, if that's an area of thunderstorms all the time, then you would assume it's kind of common. They've been there. Yeah, that they've been there before, right? At this point, they've probably grown, grown pretty comfortable with the route, possibly the associated storms on the route as well. The Electra was, or is, a very durable airplane. It's not invincible. Sure. The Electra entered the thunderstorms and flew for about 10 minutes as the turbulence became increasingly severe. So on this old airplane, there were open baggage bins above the seats. So think about like the ones on a train, right? They're just kind of rails. Yep, okay. so you just put your bags up there. So there were... you just have stuff falling. Yeah. Oh, no. So everything was bounced out of them. Lightning flashed in the cabin continuously. So we're constantly seeing lightning through the windows. The flight attendants were strapped in, as were all the passengers. People were screaming and praying. And at 12.56 p.m., the number one engine which is the one on the left side outboard, so left to right, one, two, three, four, was struck by lightning, and the lightning caused a fire. Oh, no. The fire damaged the control surfaces, and within 30 seconds, the the aircraft had entered a steep dive, and it began to break apart. It was torn into three pieces, ejecting passengers still in their seats. Oh, my gosh. High above the Amazon. And there's just nowhere to go but the mountains. The rainforest is below them at this point. Oh, the point. rainforest. Yeah. Okay. The rainforest is below them. And the airplane has broken into bits. So you all right? We're you getting need... into like lost territory here. So that was really fast, <laughs> right? It doesn't normally progress that quickly. But that is what happened. I mean, just quick. It came apart. You ready for the rest of the story? <gasps> there's more. Oh, yeah. Okay. Just one day after her high school graduation, 17-year-old Julianne Kiopke and her mother, had boarded Lanza Flight 508. No, she just graduated. Here's Julian at her graduation the day before. She's adorable. I know. They held hands as the airplane entered, entered those thunderstorms, but they didn't say anything to each other. As the lightning struck the engine, her mother looked at her and calmly said, that is the end. It's all over. Oh, mom always knows. Yet here she was, still strapped in her middle seat, sitting in the rainforest. Her mother's seat closest to the window was empty, as was the man's seat who had sat in the aisle next to her. Her body was torn and broken. She knew she was injured, but didn't know how. She blacked out when she landed, and she didn't wake up until the following morning. Oh, my gosh. Can you imagine just waking up just with... There's probably a decent amount of debris, I'm assuming. There's debris, yeah. There's debris. And like a minefield of airplane bits. Well, she's essentially by herself at this moment. The debris field is very scattered. Okay. Very scattered. But she's just by herself, strapped in the middle seat. And nobody else around. Unbelievable. After assessing her injuries, she found she had a broken collarbone because she could feel it, the bones overlapping. She had a severe cut to her left calf and her head hurt badly. And she knew that she had a concussion. The blood vessels in her eyes had burst from the sudden pressure changes, leaving her with blurred vision on one side and almost none on the other. She also had a deep cut on her arm, a partially fractured shin, and a strained vertebrae. 
I just want to hold like all the I know. pieces of myself and like my collarbone is intact and like, oh, that hurts so much. To make it worse, she only had one shoe. Oh. Unlike her body, however, her memory was completely intact. She'd recalled the lightning strike and her mother's last words and said, quote, and then it was calm, incredibly calm compared with the noise from before. I could only hear the wind in my ears. I was still attached to my seat. My mother and the man sitting by the aisle had both been propelled out of their seats, and I was free-falling. That's what I registered for sure. I was spinning. It's like the Wizard of Oz. She remembers it. Oh, my goodness. After about a day and a half and intense pain, she was able to get up. She recalled only wanting to find her mother, though she knew that she had to rescue herself. That's a tough spot to be in. So she's in the middle of the Amazon. Here she is. Yep. And she's 17. Well, Julian's parents were both German biologists and worked at a research outpost in the rainforest. Julian had spent some time there learning valuable survival skills from her father. Well, how lucky. So the first thing she did was she found a bag of candy from the plane and she took it with her. She knew she had to found, find water and she found a stream. She couldn't see very well. So she probed e- each step with her one shoe that remained and then she stepped with her barefoot. <laughs> I mean, is painting a picture that is hard to... I know, I can't imagine. Uh, it is hard to imagine the situation that she's in. She's poking around with one shoe. She has a bag, of, a bag of candy for <laughs> food, and she can't barely see anything. So that's where we are right now. Hard pass. How are you feeling? <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm glad I'm not her. That sounds terrible. Yeah, uh, uh, truly terrible, right? I can't imagine being... I can't imagine remembering the free fall. That's crazy. Just remembering like yeah. spinning in circles. I I I've been skydiving. Have you ever been skydiving? No. Yeah, I'm it's way terrifying. Too I don't I'll never go again. I'm too chicken. I went one time and I was like, nope. Not for me. I'm good. <laughs> I'm good for the rest of my Knock life. That no off the bucket list. Exactly. Done. Had that one, checked off that one, not gonna do it again. Right. So she's poking around with her good her one, one shoe. shoe. And then she just takes her other foot and kind of hopes, I guess. Okay. So she stays close to the water to avoid dangerous animals in the jungle, like snakes, which she had learned like to hide in dry leaves, knowledge that she'd gotten from her parents, which how, if somebody was going to be in this situation. It's perfect that it's her. At least she had learned, fate, right? Fate got her on that one perfectly. On day four. Day four. <sighs> day four. On day four, she noticed a bird that specializes in sca- in scavenging dead animals. Yet more knowledge that she'd gotten from her parents, and she knew what its presence meant. She found three bodies strapped to a row of plane seats, which had obviously crashed headfirst into the ground. Terrified it might be her mother, she found a strange woman and two men. That same day, Julian noticed an open wound in her arm. Flies had laid eggs in the wound, which had hatched into maggots. Oh no. You're it's just like, like worst case scenario. This is the jungle. This is real. I, I mean, mean this is so you're real. Right, but it's oh. very difficult situation. I'm almost surprised she didn't like wrap it with leaves or vines or like I'm not sure she had anything or was able to find anything. Find anything. Remember she's also just in like searing pain. Oh sure. She's got messed up vertebrae she's got her collarbone collarbone sticking out she's got a couple cuts on her not just on her arm but on her leg too maggots emit a chemical anesthetic okay 
and she was shocked that she hadn't noticed the hole that had, they had quickly eaten in her arm. But she didn't because, like I said, they have a chemical anesthetic that numbs the area so, so that they can... Didn't feel it. She just didn't feel it. She's Like I said, she has a lot of pain going on. So she picks the maggots out of her wound from time to time, never quite able to get them all, and she continues to trek on. Powerhouse. Get it, girl. After nine days of wading through knee-high water, fighting off swarms of insects, pulling leeches, she found a boat and a can of diesel fuel. She bathed her wounds in diesel fuel to kill the maggots in her arm and disinfect her other wounds, which also had maggots. Ouch. At least the maggots are dead. I mean, yes. That was smart. That was a smart move on her part, but ow. (laughs) Right. Ouch. I agree. Being in just being in the situation when I was writing this, I was painting this in my head, going, This is, I mean, yes, she has to carry on, she's still alive. She's like, I'm still alive, right? She hasn't right. been killed and she's she's not dead, so she's like, I have to do something. But just the horror and nightmare of being nine in this, days, it's nightmarish. I get mad when our power goes out for like three hours in the middle of the night. <laughs> I get passengers that yell at me, <laughs> that yell at me because the Wi Fi isn't working or something, you know? Yeah, right. And I'm like, yeah, but you didn't spend nine days in a jungle. Suck it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you could be spending nine days in a jungle. Infested with maggots, Infested damn it. Maggots. But no, you just don't have Wi-Fi. <laughs> Hush it. <laughs> anyway, she uses the she uses the diesel to kill the maggots in her arm and leg. She also found a small hut where she could take shelter from the incessant rain and searing heat. This is the Amazon rainforest, so it's hot and incredibly rainy and muggy. And the next day, she heard voices, real voices. Quote, it was like hearing angels, she said. Aww. When they saw me, they were pretty freaked out. She recalls listening in Spanish, and she heard them say that she was a zombie. Another said that she was a ghost of the rainforest, and she says, I spoke perfect Spanish, so I told them what had happened and who I was. They had heard about the crash on the radio. They gave me food and took care of my wounds, and we spent the night there in the hut. I can imagine they were freaked out, though. So, Oh, I'm sure. Her Seeing eyes are her completely all... bloodshot. Yeah, damaged, bandaged, yeah, broken things, she's... bones sticking out. Right. So she's, I mean, yeah. If, a zombie. She if any, sounds like She a zombie. probably looks like a zombie. After 11 days in the jungle, Julian was taken to a hospital, and she was reunited with her awaiting father. Oh, yay! Quote, he could barely talk in the first moment. We just held each other. I know. Oh, adorable. A search team looked for other survivors. They didn't find any. Just her. On January 12th, over two weeks later, they found the body of her mother. She'd found out that her mother had survived the crash and the fall, but she'd been too badly injured to move. And she had died there in place a few days later. Twelve other passengers were found to have survived. They died of starvation and their injuries while waiting to be rescued. That's a hard place to rescue, though. They, I mean... Yeah. I think it's a really interesting point here because they didn't have the skills that Julian had. Sure. They just didn't. They, right. They didn't know where to... Go. Where to, to go or how to go right. about... How res- to walk with one shoe. Right. How to go about rescuing themselves. How sure. to stay in the water and not walk in the dry leaves and stuff like that. Like, they didn't have the skills that she had. So they waited to be rescued and they didn't make it. Ugh. It turns out that Julian was the sole survivor in the crash, which killed the other 90 people on board. Here's a quote from her. 
Of course, I had nightmares for a long time, for years. And of course, the grief about my mother's death and that of the other people came back again and again. The thought, why was I the only survivor? It haunts me. It always will. Oh, survivor's guilt. Oh, that's awful. I can't imagine being the only person. In a whole airplane. In a whole airplane. The only one. I'm going to eventually do an episode about soul survivors because there are several. So what did she eat? Berries. She survived on that bag of candy. That's it? That's it. Solely for 10 days. Oh my goodness. She ate the bag of candy. I'm surprised she didn't like forage for berries or some kind of... She probably would have known the, you know, what to eat sure. if the if it had been available to her. I, I'm I'm just assuming that she couldn't find anything else, or she couldn't didn't have she, energy to harvest it. Yeah, I mean, like, you might you might see it in the tree, but like you got a broken right. collarbone, you right. can't see that. You're not well. climbing up like, to get coconuts and mangoes off. Right, of, yeah. exactly. You're not exactly spry enough to go like Oof. harvest that stuff. There's certainly fish available. If how will you, how are you going to do that on the limited resources? So she'd later go back to the rainforest and visit the crash site, saying that it was a therapeutic experience. Hmm. Here she is as an adult. And there's still bits of plane. Of course there is. They never picked it up. Oh, she's got the most somber, confused, just like overwhelmed face, which makes total sense. Of course. I can't imagine going back. Yeah, What are those feelings? Yeah. I I think you would have to to experience to really understand. Right. Sure. As of 2013, Julian was a biologist back in her native Germany. Her story is one of the most miraculous survival stories of all time. So this was the last flight that Lanza took. <gasps> of all time? Yeah. Oh, man. This is the flight. Way that, to go out. This is the flight that shut them down. Due to terrible maintenance and several other preventable crashes, including Lanza 501, and I'll describe that one really quickly. It's too, it's too short to cover in an episode, so I'll just describe it. Lanza 501 was a domestic flight from Lima to Cusco on a Lockheed Constellation, which I covered that airplane in episode four, Mm -hmm. where in April 1966, the crew flew the airplane into the side of a mountain because it was overloaded and it couldn't climb fast enough. It was totally predictable and preventable. The crash killed all 49 on board. Lanza's just (sighs) the worst. (laughs) But back to Lanza 508. Lanza 508 entered the Guinness Book of World Records for the worst disaster caused by a lightning strike. And although surviving that fall seems amazing, it's not even close to the world record. Julian was ejected from that wreckage at between 15,000 and 10,000 feet. Oh my goodness. Which pales in comparison to the fall of Vesna Vlavic, who was a Serbian flight attendant who fell 33,000 feet, 6.3 miles or 10 kilometers, without a parachute. And lived? And lived. Oh my gosh. Again, a sole survivor. That one is for another episode. That's a good, that's going to be a good episode. So what do you think of that story? Isn't that, that is crazy? a wild story. That story is... Mm. Did you ever read the book, Dear Edward? No. It is about a sole survivor. Is it? Yes. I don't think it's... I think it's just a novel. I don't think it's based on fact. Oh, it might be though. Was it a, is it a plane crash? Yes. Ah. Mm-hmm. There are several sole survivor stories. And what's interesting about sole survivors is they they, they have survivor's guilt sure they have guilt. i can't imagine they have forever essentially like ptsd and sure the forever question of why did i survive why was i the only one and a lot of soul survivors now julian is not one of them but a lot of soul survivors go on to have emotional and other struggles in life forever sure 
because they never really find a way to cope with How that. How do you, though? I, I don't know. I can't imagine. And in a lot of these, you know, Julian didn't lose both her parents, just her mom, which is tragic enough, but a lot of these people lose their whole families and then they have survivor's guilt and they have nobody there to like, why, you know, to, to help support them. And so in Julian's case, her dad was there. That was... Thank goodness for that. That was awesome. And it, it's cool that she went on to become a biologist. It really right? is. Right? Because that's what her parents had done. Yeah. So that is the story. That of, was a wild ride. It's a very short story to begin with, right? Because we don't have a lot of details besides we know they flew into a terrible thunderstorm um, and the airplane came apart. But really, the story begins there, not ends there. So, really? Yeah. Yeah. Let me read my sources real quick. Ready. So Wikipedia, to which I donate, excerpts from Julian's book. I read the English translation and it's called When I Fell from the Sky. I'm not even going to try. Alziek vom Himmelfiel. Nope. Something like that. <laughs> Translated directly to When I Fell from the Sky. A BBC article called How I Survived a Plane Crash. I used the Wayback Machine where I found an article called 17-Year-Old Survivor in Peruvian Plane Crash. And I used a website called fallingrain.com. And that's where I looked at maps of the crash site and I followed along with Julian's trek as I read excerpts from her book. How far was her trek, did it say? All in all, it only ended up being a, about 10 miles. That's farther than I thought you were going to say, though. I mean, that's a decent distance for her being in such bad shape. She, a nine point something miles. She covered about a mile a day, badly injured. Sure. And with one shoe and not being able to see very well. I, that's impressive. I, I agree. I mean, I think she's an impressive person. She's still alive and I would love to meet her. She's, <gasps> that she's would amazing. be amazing. She's an I'd amazing like to read person. Book. I'd like to read that book. Yeah. And that, and the book is available on Amazon. Um, So yeah. So that's the, that's the story. Wild. Yep. So anyway, um, the relatively short episode. That's that's a good one. But thanks for being here. Of course. And um, we're we're gonna do it again. In fact, we're about to do it again. I'm ready. All right.